Hey, a quick note before we get started. If you dig The Drunk Projectionist, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. <laughs> I'm begging you, for God's sake. I'm sorry. It's, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't. I thought we'd have a really terrific time. It's okay, Mike. You were such a super lady. And then, I've been so lonely. Before he was Mike Yanagita in Fargo, or the police chef in the French Dispatch, or Sonny the shopkeeper in Do the Right Thing, Stephen Park was a confused college student. His father was a doctor, so naturally, obedient kid that he was, Park enrolled in a lot of science classes, but it never really clicked. You know, I would start out with a full load of classes and then by mid-semester I was like dropping. I would become a part-time student because I was just like not into it at all. And I didn't know what I wanted to study and I obviously was not meant cut out to be a doctor. Just before dropping out of college, his girlfriend suggested he take a bunch of classes he wanted to take not classes he thought his family expected him to take. Which was such an alien idea to me. So I signed up for an acting class, a mime class, a voice and a body work class, and I ended up uh, staying in school for an extra couple of years and got my degree in theater. In this episode, we talk with Stephen Park about his journey as an actor, how he suggested changes to his character and do the right thing, and much, much more. Stay tuned, it's Stephen Park. I'm the Drunk Projectionist. Hi, I'm Stephen Park, and I'm an actor, and uh, among other things. So tell me about your childhood. Where were you born, Stephen? Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, in uh, Clinton Hill. I was there until about eight years old, and then we moved to Manhattan for a couple of years. My father was uh, a doctor. He did his uh, residency at Sloan Kettering. So we were like right across the street from that hospital for a couple of years. When I was about 10, we moved to uh, upstate New York first in Waverly, New York, and then uh, landed in Vestal, New York, which is uh, right next to Binghamton. And how did you first become infatuated with, with acting? Oh, wow. Well, um, you know, I was always like very, uh, you know, into clowning around and, uh, you know, um, I was very much into comedians and you know, like Jerry Lewis and uh, Steve Martin and Richard Pryor, you know, like I was just comedy was a, a big deal to me, but I never, never considered acting as a, a career choice. I mean, my father was a doctor, so I was kind of being pushed in that direction or something, you know, along those lines, like all good Asian kids. So well, just to go back to my childhood, I, I was very into making like Super 8 films and doing like silly movies with my friends and stuff. So I was doing that since I was a kid. But, um, you know, I went to college, I went to Boston University. I guess I was thinking I was pre-med at the time. You know, I was taking science courses and I was doing very badly. I was actually, uh, after my second year, I was on academic probation. And then I, I transferred to SUNY Binghamton, still was lost, still trying to figure out what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And, um, you know, I would start out with a full load of classes. And then by mid-semester, I was like dropping. <laughs> I would become a part-time student because I was just like not into it at all. And I didn't know what I wanted to study. And I obviously was not meant 
cut out to be a doctor. Were you a, a cut up in, in school? Yeah, I mean, I was a class clown in school, in high school. And then, yeah, I was always into into doing stupid things and, you know, whatever. And what, what would be an example? Um, it was one, I mean, I, I had this first flash in my head. One time I just uh, was in some kind of lecture in high school and I was, we were all bored. And I just told the friend next to me, it's like, just lie down on the floor. <laughs> I started giving him like CPR. Uh, and then I, I said, we have to get out of here. He, you know, just really just, I'm embarrassed <laughs> even saying that. It was just dumb. Oh, so you were just, it was just an excuse to like, oh my God, look at, look at him. And now we need to take him away. Yeah. You know, and then high school talent shows and, and then making silly uh, Super 8 movies. Well, tell me about the silly Super 8 movies. I was very much into karate when I was in, when I was 13, I started studying karate. And uh, so I made this movie called The Ninjas of Southern New York. And uh, that was a Super 8 film. And it was about the two guys that I knew from karate who were the ninjas of Southern New York. And they <laughs> It's got a great title. Yeah. Not your typical martial arts title. But yeah, just the idea of ninjas in Southern New York that tickled me. But I was in school and I was, uh, you know, thinking of dropping out. And my, my girlfriend at the time suggested before dropping out to just take one semester of classes that I thought were fun, which was such an alien idea to me. So I signed up for an acting class, a mime class, a voice and a body work class. And I ended up uh, staying in school for an extra couple of years and got my degree in theater. As you as you were taking those those four classes, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, what was going through your mind as you were doing the mime or the... What struck me was like, it did not feel like school. Like school, I had associated school with um, pain and torture and things that I didn't like to do. Like that's kind of... So if I wasn't in some kind of distress, I didn't feel like I was in school. So it was very alien uh, to me to be actually having fun and enjoying what I was doing. So... Um, yeah, all, all the classes were like, it was like natural to me. You know, I, I didn't realize how um, just, you know, being up in front of people and and, uh, and doing perfor something performative. Um, I was, the, my teacher uh, was uh, in mime class was from Japan and he was actually doing his um, thesis project and I was part of it, me and a bunch of other students. And so I was part of his mime thesis project. And you know, just body movement and learning mime and learning uh, how to tell stories through your body and all this kind of stuff was so much fun to me and, and came very naturally. And, and I and I loved it. So when I was in school, that was when I began thinking, huh, maybe maybe I, I, I would like to pursue this. How did the mime class influence your acting? I actually just used it in uh, the latest Wes Anderson project I was working on. I had to hold a rope and and the rope needed to be taught but it, it, the other end of it was on my son's foot my 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 movie son and it, ne it needed to look taut so i was creating uh without pulling his leg because he was actually up in the air so i had to make it look like there was some tension in the rope so i was actually using mime in that technique and in, in that particular instance because i was creating the illusion that i was pulling this rope so I was basically doing like mime rope pulling. I was isolating my hands without actually pulling his leg because that would have been painful. And it's just kind of a valuable thing to know how to you know move your body or how to like isolate 
different parts of your body. And it's not like I, I'm using it every time I do a performance, but it's just kind of a useful thing to understand. And, uh, and also isolating your body and, and just moving your body in, in particular ways is what, what, what I learned through mime. And uh, that in itself was valuable, just, just mm -hmm. um, learning how to move well. And then I, uh, from there, I went to New York City and I started as a stand-up comic. I was doing open mic nights. You know, it's funny, like, I was doing stand-up because I felt like that that's something, that that was my way into the business. And I, to be honest, I, I, I hated it. It was really uh, hard for me to do stand-up, especially back then, because a lot of the clubs were kind of racist and it was always, like, depressing <laughs> to do it. But I made myself get up there. But then eventually I got into theater. My first uh, work as an actor was uh, at the Pan-Asian Repertory Theater, which was an Asian American theater company. And then, um, you know, I did a few plays there. Uh, my first film was in New York before I moved to LA, which was in 88, Do the Right Thing. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic first film. Oh my God. <laughs> um, and I do want to ask you about that. Let's, let's talk about one or two of the plays at the Pan-Asian uh, Theater Company. All right. Very first one was a, a adaptation of a Korean uh, folk uh, story, and the English translation was "Why, why a long, long time ago," not W H Y, but more like a wailing kind of "Why, why a long, long time ago." That was the translation of the title, and it was kind of uh, uh, it was uh, some kind of uh, parable. And if you ask me to tell you what the story is, I won't be able to because I've forgotten what the story was about but it was like Korean villagers. And I did a number of other plays. I did, a, we, there is an adaptation of Macbeth that I was uh, in called Shogun Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth translated into feudal Japan. What role did you play? It was, I was actually, it was a smaller role. It was one of the samurais. You know, it was, a, I can't even remember my character's name, but I had a fight scene at the end with Macbeth. And I remember I had in order to do this final effect because he kills me on stage by breaking my neck and i had to do a fight scene and i had a, a stick a wooden stick taped to my arm over my elbow and so i had to do the whole uh fight with him with my left arm completely straight because i didn't want to break the stick because after um he uh he knocks me over and then he comes up from behind me and then when he when he twists my neck that's when I bend my elbow of the arm that the stick is on, and it created this cracking noise, so everybody could hear my neck break. So the whole stick thing was just to create that sound effect, and it was really effective. And then I fell off the stage. Like that was my death scene. <laughs> that's that sounds like a great yeah. death. Scene. It wasn't a big role, but it was a cool fight scene. <laughs> <laughs> and how in the world did you get cast and do the right thing? Gosh, it was just one of those things. I went, uh, I auditioned for Spike. He was in the room with the casting director. I remember doing my audition and then uh, he just said, you got the part, like right in the room, right there, then and there. And I was already a huge fan of his. And I just, oh my God, I was freaking out. I was like, can I hug you? And then he, I gave him a hug and that was how it all started. Wow. Yeah. So what, did you feel your character of Sonny was fully developed? Oh no, I, you know, I have to be honest, that was a really hard thing for me to do. I'm a Korean American kid born and raised in Brooklyn who went through a period during my adolescence when I was just 
clearly didn't want to have anything to do with my culture and all this other stuff. And so here I was needing to play an immigrant, you know, an FOB, uh, somebody with an, an accent, and I'd never done that before. And so I had to learn that dialect, and I had to be a character that was perceived as foreign, especially in the context of this film. And so I had to overcome my own internal kind of biases against uh, my own internalized racism, essentially. You know? So that was kind of tough. What do you mean by your own internal racism? Well, just my own attitudes about people who are just newly immigrated immigrants who have accents. So it's like, uh, you know, who, who aren't cool or whatever, you know, like me as this young guy, it's like, this is my first film and it's like a big deal and here I'm playing this character that nobody's going to recognize that I'm acting everybody's going to think oh there's this Korean guy with a Korean accent and that's who I am like there is no there I, I knew kind of in a way that that the character itself it wasn't like some kind of uh, whatever acting I was doing it was a big deal to me that I was even even able to pull off the dialect but as far as anybody seeing it who's not Korean, who doesn't really know much about, you know, the nuances of, of Asian and immigrant Asians, it's like they're just going to think, oh, there's this Korean guy. So it's like they're, they're not noticing whatever lengths I went to in order to portray this character. So that's kind of what I was thinking at the time, I remember, that it, it was just a hard, it was a hard role for me to play in the, in, in the state of mind I, I had at the time. And did you talk to the the woman that played your wife, Ginny Yang? Oh yeah, about this. You know, I didn't really talk to her much about it, um, and I wish I knew where she is. I mean, she just uh, kind of disappeared. I don't know where she is now. She hasn't been acting for a long time. But uh, yeah, no, this was on my own little private hell I was in because uh, it was kind of <laughs> like embarrassing at the same time that I even felt that way. You know, uh, how did you go about? perfecting that accent of someone who's a new immigrant? Well, I, I was actually, my, my brother-in-law, who, who lives in Korea, who, um, you know, he was kind of helping with me with it. And, uh, you know, it got to the point where I felt very comfortable with it and then needing to use that dialect quite a bit throughout my career. So, yeah, you know, that's an issue, too, for some Asian-American actors who don't ever want to do a dialect or whatever, you know, like... Um, so sometimes I feel like, uh, especially back then, a lot of times they were asking for it when it was unnecessary or because Asians were always being portrayed as foreigners. It, it can be a drag uh, if, if like every character you're doing ha has to have a dialogue. Um, but back then that was my first time and just being able to do it was kind of a victory for me. Yeah, you were fantastic. As the whole movie, I mean, my God, I just rewatched it, you know, two or three months ago and and mm -hmm. it, it really, really stands up. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. I mean, we knew it was kind of a big deal when we were making it, but uh, not. I don't think nobody could have imagined where, you know, how it it's standing now. You know. Yeah, there's so much to talk about uh, when it comes to that movie. But why don't we talk about your scene with with Bill Nunn and the 20D batteries? 20D energizers. 20C energizers. D, not C, D. C energizers. D, motherfucker, D. Learn to speak English first, all right? D. How many you say? Twenty, motherfucker. Twenty. What the fuck you? Motherfucker. <laughs> motherfucker, you. You. You all right, man? You all right? You know that whole scene. Part of it was just kind of improvised. You know, it's just can't. You know, Spike just let the camera run. A lot of the tail end of that scene, I remember, was just 
him leaving the camera running and then he's just yelling at us because we're not getting the batteries he needs so it was fun for that reason that that there was a lot of kind of um improvisation going on like i know you worked with the cone brothers and they're famous for not doing very many takes what was your experience working with spike lee Spike Lee, I don't remember him doing a lot of takes either. He, you know, he would just do what as many as he needed to get the shot he wanted. But I, I, and I didn't really feel that he was an actor's director at the time. I think he just trusted the actors a lot, a lot more than other directors. He just let actors do what they're doing. There was not a lot of character motivation, dial, you know, conversation going on between Spike and me and. Um, and I think his idea of my character also was very skeletal. There was no sense of who this character was just by reading the script. So there are certain decisions that I made going in, one of which was that my character was, he was outraged about the murder of Radio Rahim, that he wasn't racist. And these were choices that I made knowing that there are a lot of racist Korean shop owners. But you know, growing up, I always identified with the, the black American experience. And, and so I just used my own experience as kind of my barometer. So there are moments that I used in order to portray my character that way. Uh, you know, one of which was uh, the line, you and me saying. I black! Me black! Why you black? Me black! I black! You and me same! We same! Same, be black. Open your eyes, motherfucker. Leave the Korean alone, man. He's all right. How I not only feel as the character, but how I feel as a human being, um, that the black American experience and the Asian American experience are connected, even though the two communities have not historically gotten along all the time. And I have not personally felt that kind of support between the communities uh, as much as now. So, uh, yeah, so that line was coming from a deep place for me. And then there is just one moment when Radio Rahim is being driven away by the cops and you see me come up behind and I, I kind of um, slam the, the trunk of the police car as it's driving away. So that too was also improvised. Spike didn't direct a lot of the kind of action that was happening. He kind of I think he kind of gave a general sense of what was supposed to happen, but not specifically like you run out of here, or you go this way. So there are things that were happening on screen that were just, everybody was improvising. So you, me, same wasn't in the script? No. And did he talk to you afterwards about that? I just remember him after I said, it, he was like, I like that, I like that. You know, so he, he kept it in. So I'm, I'm very grateful that he did. Like, like I said, I think he just accepted what I was doing and um, because the way it was written, this character could have just been this, you know, this immigrant Korean who's kind of on the periphery, who just cares about his own shop, could care less about the neighborhood, could care less about what's going on, could just be on the side of the cops. You know what I mean? Like he could have just by his indifference, he could have just been in the background. And so I was not wanting that uh, to be the portrayal of this particular Korean shop owner, that he needed to be more engaged and I, you know, I, I, I remember posting this somewhere about how I was concerned that I would be criticized just because I think a lot of people will go, oh, Koreans are racist. That's bullshit. You know, like, 
So I thought that that might happen, although it never did. What was your reaction to the movie when you saw it in the theater or at a screening? Uh, well, it was interesting because I remember the first time I saw it, was it Midtown? It was, it was somewhere where the audience was predominantly white. And I remember some people in the audience going, this is bullshit, people walking out and really yeah seeing it with a more mixed audience with more um african-american people in the audience and of course it was a completely different reaction so yeah i i thought wow this is so interesting this movie it's like people either loved it or hated it and why don't we talk about um the montage scene where there are four or five actors that are staring right into the camera you know saying anti-italian things or anti-black things or anti-asian thing and then your character sonny he goes on this anti-jewish anti-semitic tirade right was that tough to do right to a camera? No, I mean, I, th- I thought it was kind of fun. I remember um, the camera guy was uh, on a wheel- in a wheelchair and uh, was just being pushed right into my face as we were doing it. And, uh, yeah, it was really just about getting all the words out in, in the proper dialect so that they were understood. Like, that was my goal. <laughs> it, would have been, you know, it was a lot of, like, uh, yeah, I mean... It could have been a word salad, and and I was just trying to be as articulate as possible in the dialogue. I got good price for you. Now catch it. How I'm doing? Chocolate, egg cream drinking, bagel and deluxe, banana, but this Jew asshole. How difficult is it to be a fictional racist? You know, I was kind of looking at the humor of it when I was doing it. Like, I understood that it was racist. I mean, just like a lot of In Living Color was that way, too. It's like kind of meant to provoke and... It, it's kind of kind of being racist in your face, but because it's a, as a comedic thing, not as like a sincere racist epithet kind of thing. So there is a context that I understood that we were performing in this particular context. So I wasn't taking what I was saying as like seriously coming from me per se, you know. And how much did In Living Color help you with your, your movie acting? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, the things I think I learned about uh, from In Living Color was, I, I, you know, coming from the theater, I used to be very stuck on whatever the words were and saying the words exactly as they're written because, you know, the playwright is the king in, in the theater. So the idea that, oh, you could kind of like, you don't have to follow the script exactly or you, if you come up with a better joke, just do it, you know, kind of thing. It's much more spontaneous. So I kind of learned that by working on In Living Color, of being a lot more relaxed about lines and, and like looking for the funnier moment and, you know, just trying to uh, perfect what it is that you're doing and, and that the words on the page are not, are not written in stone at all. Uh, so it was a very different kind of attitude about the writing. I know you and I have talked about Fargo before, but I think for the context of this of this podcast, people are running, going to want to hear about Fargo. So let's talk about Mike Yanagita. Um, why, and I, I've heard you say this before, that uh, that you didn't feel the role was right for you. Uh, yeah. And why, why was that? Well, uh, well, I was in mid thir- my mid-30s. The character was written as somebody like maybe 10 years older than me, like, balding and fat and um um and i didn't i guess i didn't feel like i fit the part physically uh so maybe i was a little stuck on that and 
Um, because because they had they had said bald and punchy. Yeah, an older like an older guy, and I I was like I just didn't feel like that I could pull it off. So I passed on it when it first came to me, and then I guess the second time when I decided to go for it, um, I flew from LA to New York. It was like a sat. It was a Saturday morning. It was raining. I remember I had this tie with a stain on it, and that kind of helped me with my character. Like I figured, like that he would wear something that had a stain on it, that was rumpled. Um, <laughs> uh, I did. I don't know. I kind of like combed my hair, and maybe I maybe I combed it really flat. And I remember just convincing myself that I was this character. I had to kind of do like a little self hypnotic induction to keep myself in this character because it was. It felt it felt outside of me a little bit. The character, like I, it was hard for me to feel inside the character for a while until, like, boom. I mean, I have to say, when I auditioned, when I met the Coen Brothers, I remember saying to them that this was the most interesting Asian American character I've ever read in a, in a movie script before. So I was like, I was already like aware that this character was very unusual and interesting and why was he why was he interesting to you well i mean he was from that area he had the dialect he was desperately lonely and in my own kind of internal work i came to the conclusion that he probably has some men mental illness possibly that lying to him is not so much lying it's it's kind of how he gets through the world because he probably lived at home with his mom maybe never had a job, maybe never had a serious, you know, so there are a lot of things that probably he had a lot of shame around. And so he would cover that by lying about his life. So there is a lot of things that I just kind of like imagined about Mike Yanagita that uh, informed my uh, preparation for the, the role. And so that complexity added to his humanity. Yeah, and um, you know, and I've had, uh, Asian American people come up to me and, and say that was the first time they've seen an Asian character in a film that was fully fleshed out and had wasn't two dimensional or wasn't you know somebody who was just in the back like he was a a character that had a whole scene to himself and it was so kind of bizarre and tragic and emotional so that was kind of unusual especially I think uh, in terms of Asian American characters in cinema. Absolutely. And so if we could just back up a little bit and you, and I don't think reporters do a very good job about ask, asking actors these kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. And so I, I am trying to get better at it, which is understanding the craft of acting and, and the work that actors do in forming a character, you know, to getting to that, that fully complex mm -hmm. human portrayal. Um, so what was the work that you did um, to get to that point? Um, you know, to me, acting is a, kind of a mysterious process because like every role is different, but this character somehow w was emotionally really connected to my mother. And I was actually internalizing a lot of, um, not in reality, but imagining my mother in really extremely distressing pain and feeling that 
kind of carrying it in my belly, like the, the image of that, and that she was expressing herself through me. It was this whole kind of imaginative, kind of self-hypnotic thing that I went through where, and it was also coupled with my own, I, I, I think that particular time in my life also, I was, I was having issues, so it was easy for me to tap into my own pain so it wasn't like, I mean, it was funny because at first this character felt so far away from me. And then the moment I was in it, I was like, oh, wow, I'm totally this guy. I totally understand this, what he's feeling. Like, then, then it became like, oh, my God, I'm, I am this guy. You know, like, it was like that kind of something snapped. And I could completely identify with his pain. I could completely identify with his loneliness. And then I was just in it and see kind of seeing the world through his eyes and, and also this connection with my mother and, and experiencing my mother, at least in my imagination, being uh, just screaming in pain. Because because you were like imagining what her pain would be? Imagining it and, and in my own experience, feeling it. So I was in my own in my own mind through that whole scene, I was actually crying. I was actually crying in pain and covering it. Like that was, that was what I was doing in that scene. As an actor, I was covering my pain. So that was, that was essentially kind of like my approach to that particular role in that particular scene. Wow. As an actor, do you think that you could portray most roles if you could just tap into the right emotions? Yeah, I mean, I find I, I found as an actor, as I've grown, that it's become easier for me to put myself in imagined circumstances. So I don't have to do like um, transferals or what? What do you call it? like um, like imagining my dog died, and so that I can have a an emotional experience in a, in a scene that has nothing to do with my dog, like. It's not like substitutions. I, I don't feel the need to necessarily substitute one experience for it. I just put myself in the circumstances of the character. And my ability to do that, I think, has just gotten stronger over time. So I just put myself in the circumstances. And then I don't try to um, achieve a, 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 an emotional state, per se. I just try to believe the circumstances I'm in as deeply as possible. And do you think that's experience as an actor or also does getting older and experiencing more of life help you? Oh, I definitely both. Definitely both. And I think all human beings, we all have this ability, but as an actor, you're kind of sharpening the skill a little bit more. But, you know, you can see how people are influenced all the time by by me, you know, just like the political divisions in, in the country right now, it's it's all so being manipulated by social media and, and about mainstream media or whatever, like how easily human beings can go into a particular mind frame or a particular perception of reality. So I'm doing that consciously. I'm consciously putting myself in certain circumstances or or seeing the world through a particular person's character's point of view and so my ability to do that i think has gotten 
better and easier. Whereas I don't have to, I think before it was more mechanical or trying to remember what I learned in my acting class. And, uh, you know, it was, now it's my process, I think, is much more intuitive and spontaneous. Why is the craft of acting so difficult to put into words? I think for non-actors and maybe actors as well. Is it is it part of this, this mystery? Uh, well, I guess it depends on who you speak to. I mean, it's interesting that so many, or not so many, but I mean, some great actors that, like Tilda Swinton, for instance, and I don't think ever took an acting class. Uh, Ewan Bremner, who I worked with uh, on Snowpiercer, never took an acting class. I don't believe Helen Mirren actually studied acting either. Yeah, I, I kind of enjoy meeting people who don't really have any formal training, but are great at what they do. <laughs> Does it make you jealous? A little bit, yeah. It's like, gosh, I spent so much time kind of, you know, and money learning this. It, it just, it, it kind of, I think, freed me up in terms of my thinking about what I'm doing or this craft, that it's so up to the individual. In your current role in the French Dispatch, uh, your, your character is described as, quote, uh, a great exemplar of a mode of cuisine known as police cooking. <laughs> Why did that role appeal to you? The fact that Wes Anderson wrote it with me in mind, I mean, I, I was just amazed that that even happened. West definitely uh, casting me in this movie was like one of the biggest thrills for me to just be part of his orbit, you know. Wes presented the role to me, uh, you know, he, he said, oh, I have this little thing that I, I wrote, you know, and would you be uh, willing to read it? <laughs> I mean, it's something really kind of, um, uh, he's such a, he's such a sweet guy and um, I, I just adore him. And uh, he, so anyway, Lieutenant Escoffier is not the kind of role that normally comes, you know, by my windscreen. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's usually Korean dads or something, you know, like some whatever. It's like your typical role that you would see an Asian guy in. So uh, this role of uh, Lieutenant Escoffier, who's a, the, a police chef, was just unusual at its face. Lieutenant Escoffier. He is the great exemplar of the mode of cuisine known as police cooking. The aromas of the kitchen cast a spell, which was to be mortally broken. As you know by now, we have kidnapped your son. As I got deeper into reading it and then kind of thinking about it, um, uh, I was just inspired by the, the whole world that Wes was creating, because Wes started by sharing some pictures of me, of the, the town of uh, France that this was all going to exist in. So he gave me pictures of what the buildings would look, look like in the streets. And and then I went through the script and I've never done this before, but I created an image board of just the movie, just so that I could be in the world of the movie before I actually flew to France, um, because it was such a different world. So I just created, I just every image that was in the script, I would print it out and put it up on the board. And, um, and then I happened to come across uh, this uh, chef who was a Buddhist nun, uh, she's a Buddhist nun by the name of Zhang Quan, 
who was uh, on Chef's Table on the third season, the first episode with um, Eric Repair, who has a like three or five star restaurant in Manhattan. And he invited her to cook at his restaurant. And she's like become this legendary temple chef. She lives in the temple in, in South Korea. And uh, she essentially is a monk, but she creates these amazing, masterful vegetarian meals. Uh, and she grows all the vegetables herself. And she also is doing it with um, all of her Buddhist um, monk training, uh, you know, so everything is infused with this enlightened sense of um, consciousness and all of this heart and every, everything is infused with love and presence. And, and I was like, that's Nescafier. That's the spirit of Nescafier right there, that he is like a monk. He's, I, I saw him as somebody who was just living on his own, that this cooking, working for the police commissioner was his entire life. And, uh, and that he, when he worked, that it, everything he did was so masterful and very much like um, what I imagine Joan Kwan, like it's full of her uh, loving attention and her desire to, to infuse her food with love and to spread love through her food. So that was kind of like one dimension of Nescafier that I really worked with a lot as well as the kind of military um, police discipline. Like I saw him, somebody who was also extremely tough and somebody who could take care of himself and somebody who probably at some point maybe had to do some police work or something to that effect. Yeah, I always get the sense he was very minute and precise and, and yeah. delicious. Yes, like he was always like, he was always ready. He was always like ready to just put on an amazing meal. And also knowing that it was meant to be for police in the field, it had to be stuff, food that was portable, that was easy to eat with one hand, and that wouldn't drip and leave evidence on a crime scene. And, and I believe you expressed all of that with a single gesture when I saw the movie. And that gesture was when you, your greeting. It was like half oh. salute, half hello. Please right. describe that. It was just like, uh, hello. It's like, yeah, very simple. Yeah, it was. It was very simple, but yeah. it, but it actually had a, a touch of a touch of grace to it. Mm, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it was definitely. Uh, yeah, like I, I mean, this guy, uh, I, I see him as being somebody who's extremely physically adept, and um, there is a he has a, a kind of a warrior aspect to him. You know, that he was somebody who was always ready he, and his mind was very focused and he was very tuned in with his boss, with, with Matthew Amarik's character, you know, that he, and also, uh, you know, when his, when the commissaire's son uh, gets kidnapped, that he's completely willing to risk his life for him, you know, so it's not even a question. So he had that kind of spirit. And I understand you're already doing the next Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, I actually just recently finished. Uh, they just uh, finished production on that. So I got to spend a little over a month in uh, Spain. I'm not going to say anything about the movie, but it's going to be amazing. It's so amazing. Gosh, you can't even... I, I can't wait to see it. So do you feel you're on Team Wes Anderson now? Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like I've uh, been... I'm now part of his acting troupe, and I'm so... Um, 
I'm so honored and uh, grateful. It's it's a great um, thing to be part of. Yeah, I follow you on Instagram, and it was just a joy to see you having so much fun at Cannes. Oh yeah, that was a, that was an amazing experience. My first time at Cannes, and so I wanted to people to experience what I was experiencing. It's like, okay, this is the first time I will ever walk out of Wes Anderson's bus to arrive on the Palais red carpet at Cannes. Like, so it's like I had to just document everything that I was experiencing for the very first time. Well, thank you for sharing it. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I'm like, oh my God, look at Stephen. He's there. I know Stephen. It's so fantastic. I'm so happy for him. I know. It was so exciting. Yeah. So I wanted everybody to experience that. And so I'm yeah. glad you felt that. I totally felt that way. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah, especially, wasn't there like a little, seemed like there was a dance party in somebody's room at one point. Oh, well, that was after the screening and then after the dinner and it was like three in the morning. We're all going to our room. So I go up in the elevator and Bill Murray's got his uh, portable speaker out. And then next thing you know, we're all dancing in the hallway. Tilda Swinton and uh, Sandro Kopp and, and then Matthew Almerique showed up. And uh, so we were all just, it was like three in the morning and we're all dancing in the hallway and just having an amazing time. It was so joyful and so celebratory. It was incredible. All right. Well, congratulations on all your recent successes. Oh, thank you. Again, that's Stephen Park. You can see him in the French Dispatch now and in Wes Anderson's next movie. I'm very happy Stephen is part of Team Wes Anderson. Thanks for listening. See you next time.